Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the California Native Plant Society. California is a biodiversity hotspot on our planet, and CNPS is working to support the communities of plants and related beings that make it so. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Emily Murphy is an ecological gardener, an educator, an author of now two books on gardening with both personal and communal purpose. Her first book, Grow What You Love, is now joined by Grow Now, how we can save our health, communities, and planet one garden at a time. You know, Emily, with this new IPCC report in 2022 about the uptick in climate change and the uptick in impacts on billions of people and millions of species really stresses the urgency to act. And I know you and I preach about this and we come together in the fact that our gardens are really immediate and direct points of climate activism and Grow Now captures all of this, not only the importance of our gardens in this time, but the ways in which our gardens can be meaningful places of climate activism. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited about this work and talking more about it with you today. Hi, Jennifer. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I can't quite express what this means to me, so thank you. So, okay, you know, uh, give us a tiny bit of a refresher for people who may not have heard the episode on Grow What You Love, which is just a motto we should all live by every day. What gets you out of bed every morning as a gardener? Mm, that's a great question. And it's one that I find is ever changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I wrote Grow What You Love, it was very much that. And I and that is still very much part of me. Uh, and and all that I do, uh, grow what you love really stems from this idea that when you're growing what you love, you're growing more than a garden. You're growing your life. And at that time, grow what you love was really this uh, tribute in some ways to my family and all the places I've been in my life, different stages uh, of my life of growing as a person. And so much of what we do, I think, in our gardens can be translated to how we grow as humans. And, mm-hmm. and that was really a tribute to my, my mom and my grandmother. And shortly after I wrote Grow What You Love, I shifted to focusing on finding beauty. And mm-hmm. uh, that became really important to me. And, and I think that, you know, we, we sort of, I think what happens is we sort of incorporate these ideas that we're really focusing on, almost like a, a mantra, mm-hmm. and we integrate those ideas into who we are as a human and um, ask what's next. Okay, how else can I grow as a human? And and so Grow What You Love was still very much part of me, and that's my the hashtag I use with everything, if anyone follows me. But finding beauty became uh, really important to me shortly after that, and part of that came from the uh, introspection on how uh, beauty, the innate uh, need for beauty, and the yeah, why is that? Uh, we can't forget Break that down for the power a little bit. of beauty, and uh, we can't put a price tag on beauty, and and that could be you know translated in many ways: beauty in our gardens, beauty in nature, beauty in life, and really just trying to challenge myself as a as a human, and and then with time. 
especially um, say that was 2019 and then 2020, uh, beginning the pandemic. And when I started writing Grow Now, I was really focusing on connectivity and these words that are so powerful in Grow Now, uh, which are rewild, restore, regenerate, and again, connectivity and how we can consider our own connectivity to nature and ourselves and community, which at the beginning of the pandemic and the lockdown, we were um, harshly separated uh, from our community and from nature in many ways. And that became more important and that became a driving factor in writing Grow Now. So I want to go back a little bit to this uh, turn you took towards beauty and finding beauty in your life. And just unpack that a little bit more. What do you think it was in your life at that moment that made you focus on that uh, after the writing of the first book? Mm. I've been thinking about that quite a bit, actually. Interestingly, even though that was a couple of years ago, yeah. I, I really, yeah, I really think that it came from a place of wanting to examine uh, my roots and what it is as humans that propels us forward, what it is mm -hmm. that provides us with everyday joy and mm -hmm. finding beauty. In and the, why do you think that matters? Yeah. Yeah. Finding beauty in the everyday. Uh, when you think about it, the bills have to get paid. The laundry has to get done. You know, you have to go to the grocery store if you're not growing all your own food. And I mean, it can be, it can be not drudgery, but a lot of work to just get through each day. And it can feel maybe a little bit like Groundhog Day, where <laughs> every day might feel kind of similar to the last. And when we take time to consider the beauty of the everyday, we can possibly find a little bit of magic in the everyday that propels us forward and also gets us up in the morning. And maybe you wake up with your morning tea and go for a walk in your potted garden or your landscape or down the road with your dog. And, and you look for things you hadn't noticed before, maybe the shift of light, maybe the way the breeze is moving leaves, uh, a new flower that popped up, whatever it might be, but finding beauty in that every day, I think is essential. And what a gift for us as humans to have that opportunity. So you find yourself in the lockdown. You have had this focus on, on beauty. I think people will remember, or if people follow you, you are deeply rooted in California, in Northern California, in your family there and, and growing your life. Take us on the journey that leads you to conceptualizing Grow Now and some of the maybe watershed moments that lead you to the focus points that this new book has, you know, specifically in those kind of bullet points right on the cover that I already read about trying to get us as gardeners to get beyond an idea of organic to... Uh, also include rewilding in our garden lives to um, to focus on some of the primary or or maybe first level of environmental 
impacts our garden can have, such as supporting biodiversity, whether that's in flora and fauna or whether that's in soil microbes, uh, and also how this then feeds into uh, supporting not only our own health and communities, but our entire planet from our one small place in the garden. Mm -hmm. That's a really well-framed question and very layered. I, I, I love a layered question, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, I think there's, a, there's multiple things at work. There's the fact of how I see myself, which I don't see myself as an activist in the traditional sense of the word. I'm that person who parks at the back of the grocery store parking lot. I would much rather walk to the doors rather than park near the front where it's chaotic. I'm not going to be that person who's necessarily um, going to a rally or marching. I did, I did, of course, go to some marches, uh, say, in 2016 and 2017, <laughs> but uh, they, <laughs> they take a toll on me. And I think that's because I'm uh, truly a, a social extrovert, I think is the correct term, where I'm really slightly introverted, but uh, socially extroverted. And I really, I need my time to recharge. And I also uh, am a person who likes to avoid conflict. <laughs> Maybe some of your listeners can relate to that. So for me, I had to ask myself, what can I do? How can I help? I might not be the person going to rally, but it doesn't mean I'm not an activist. Mm -hmm. It does, right? It yeah. doesn't, it means I need to express myself in a way that's true to me. And this goes back, I think, to gifts. And I spent a number of years as a classroom teacher when my uh, oldest daughter was younger as a way to be part of her life and her education. And um, it was a really wonderful time in my life. I learned a lot about how we learn as humans, but I learned from that time or was reminded in that time that we all have a gift. We all have something to offer and how that looks uh, for each of us is going to be uniquely different. Some of us are primarily artists or communicators or musicians, or, or maybe we're accountants and lawyers uh, and doctors. But it doesn't mean that uh, we can't express ourselves in multiple ways uh, and, that, um, and that we can't use those gifts to be activists. Uh, and so for me, it's like, okay, what can I do? I was um, raised in a family of gardeners and growers. My, two of my grandparents had, um, or I guess my grandmother and my paternal grandfather, uh, they had farms. I was lucky enough to be raised in uh, close to growing food. And I was also lucky enough to be raised close to nature and had mentors in that area of my life. And, and then in college, I studied ethnobotany, environmental science, soil science, ecology, social ecology, religious studies, uh, you name it. It all went into the pot to helping me understand our connection, our human connection to the natural world and our specifically our connection to plants. And I thought at that moment, this aha moment, uh, when I was pitching the book to Timber Press, 
that, okay, here's something I can do. I have the background. Mm -hmm. I was an educator. I pretty sure that I can take this massive topic and distill it into a single book where at that point I had not yet seen a single book that was able to encapsulate the ideas of regenerative organics uh, scaled for the home gardener, ideas of how we can approach the climate crisis. What a massive, um, what a massive concern that is in our lives every day. Um, How we can approach the loss of biodiversity, which uh, we know that the climate crisis and uh, species extinction are uh, have causes that are very much uh, the root same cause. How can I then distill, using that word again, my background and how I approach the world, what might be my gifts to contribute in some way? And that's really at the heart of how Grow Now uh, came to be yeah. and how I pitched it and how I had the courage to pitch it because I knew it would be hard. And it's easy when you look at a book and you're like, oh, this is great, or <laughs> I love it, or I don't love it. And But every author goes through, I mean, you know this, Jennifer, you go through a lot to, and I'm using that word a lot in a very general, a general way, it takes a toll to create original thought and to tease ideas out of ourselves where they might be an impression of an idea, but how do you articulate it in writing and visually with photography um, and how it could come together to be something meaningful for other people. And I really thought I could do that because of my background and and, um, as my way to be an activist in this world where we all have a way again to contribute because we all have gifts the phrase, the courage to pitch this book lands pretty deeply with me, Emily. And uh, it does take a lot of courage, especially to try and make such enormous topics, which are the source of such daunting grief and anxiety in our world right now, um, to take these on and to wrestle them into accessible and personal and positive calls to action is no small feat. And that is what you have done. Mm-hmm. Maybe describe the structure of the book for people, or or I certainly can as well. But I think it would be, uh, again, a little more personal coming from your voice. Um, because you, you do this lovely interweaving of both personal story of, you know, scientific lessons, um, scientific being a sort of, you know, again, a general word, and then modeling what you are trying to demonstrate and advocate for in example gardens around the country, which I I really appreciated that diversity of approach and location as well. Take us on your process for for how you decided to break this down and um, kind of outline what you were and how you were going to approach this daunting task. Mm-hmm. I come from a place, and I know I've used that phrase already once in our conversation, but I come from a place of really understanding or thinking that uh, we're moved in many ways. And I was lucky enough in my earlier years to see my Angelou speak, and it was incredibly powerful. And uh, I go back to her words quite often, and, and 
one of her quotes that I'm sure many of your listeners know is, and I'm, I'm not going to quote it verbatim, but uh, it's something like people won't remember what you told them, but they'll, they'll remember how you made them feel. And I carry that with me very much, but I also wanted to create a book that was a model for hope in action. And I knew that a book with real takeaways was what I felt we all needed. Uh, and, and I see that because uh, my other half, my husband is a, f- a filmmaker. He makes documentary films. And one of his recent films was a film on, on uh, fish and fish hatcheries and fish farms. And, and at the end of each of the screenings, people would ask, okay, so what do I do? What do I eat? What do I do? How do I fix this problem? And, and we all want solutions. We all want um, tangible, everyday solutions that we could incorporate in our daily lives that that aren't overwhelming. It's simple, something maybe as simple as changing where you source your food or what you eat. For us with this book, Grow Now, it, it's something as simple as how you approach uh, soil and landscapes and gardens and all that you grow. So hope from action. How can I present this information in a way that with real tangible takeaways? Here's what you can do. One, two, three, right? But it had to be more than that. Going back to Maya Angelou's uh, quote, that we really also need to have a narrative or a shift in narrative. How can I present this information in a way that allows us to restory, to rewrite the narrative that basically got us into this mess? And in some ways, this goes back to the word sustainable. It's no longer enough to be sustainable. And when we look at the word sustain, at its very simplest form, it means to maintain the status quo. If we maintain the status quo, where are we headed? It doesn't look too good. Uh, And so with hope in action and creating this model uh, of scaling regenerative organics for home gardeners and also community members for communities in general, we need to have a framework or a reframing which includes an update in our language and an update in perspective for how we approach our landscapes. Because without that, we're missing an important piece of the puzzle. We need to have both an update in language, an update in perspective, and an update in um, how we do things. And in many ways, just like a cycle, such as the carbon cycle, uh, which is part of the book, one can beget the other. Action can help form or inform our perspective, but so too can words help inform our need to act or how we act. And it's this feedback loop in a very positive way that could then propel us forward. And and if I'm updating my language to use words like connectivity, rewild, uh, reconnect, um, restore, regenerate, then uh, maybe that catches on and it causes people to think about things a little bit differently. And I talk about language more in the book as well. Emily Murphy is an ecological gardener, an educator, and an author. Her most recent book is Grow Now, how we can save our health, communities, and planet one garden at a time. 
Grow Now shows us as gardeners how to go beyond organic, how to rewild, how to sequester carbon, and how to support biodiversity. Because we need all of this more than ever, starting from our gardens. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible by the California Native Plant Society on a mission to support California's native plants and places using both head and heart. In October of 2022, CNPS is hosting their biennial Native Conference, this year focused on rooting together, restoring connections to plants, place, and people. CNPS is inviting everyone to be part of the conversation and the effort to celebrate, protect, and restore California's plants and everything connected to them. They have a current call out for presentation applications, and if how we restore connections for people, places, and plants is dear to your heart and work, and you would like to find out more about presenting at the conference, please visit conference.cnps.com. Hey, it's Jennifer. So this newest IPCC report on the impacts and vulnerabilities we and our planet mates face as a result of climate change, in large part caused by human activity, is heartbreaking, sobering, overwhelming even, which is a feeling we cannot get stuck in. We are gardeners. Let's compost our grief and take up our agency where we take most of our sorrows and joys into the garden. With the vernal equinox taking place this Sunday, the 20th, at 8.30 a.m. in the morning Pacific Daylight Time, and the spring-summer growing season underway in the Northern Hemisphere, Now is the time for every one of us to double down on stewarding our gardens into their fullest potential as agents of climate activism and, in fact, as agents of love for the plants, for the places, for one another on this generous planet. We can do it. We can do more. We can do better. We are the gardeners. Emily Murphy is an ecological gardener and a passionate educator. In her newest book, Grow Now, How We Can Save Our Health, Communities, and Planet One Garden at a Time, Emily encourages us as gardeners to engage with our gardens as places of direct climate activism. As we come back to our conversation with Emily, she shares more specifics on how. So the first, there are sort of five, one, two, three, four, five, six sections. Um, Grow a garden, change your life, go beyond organics, lay the groundwork, plants for people and the planet, grow and gather, rewilding to support diversity and grow more food. And and so one of the things I also really love, uh, which anyone in the garden world, I think, will have noticed in their lifetime is that there tend to be sort of camps. Um, and, and this is true both socially and communally in, and human groups, but also in our gardens themselves, right? Where the vegetable garden is over here and the flower garden is over here. And this 
reweaving of those tasks and um, focal points together, uh, I think is is one of the great trends in our garden world right now. And and you put that to good use. Walk us through um, even just that very first. Um, end of that very first section, because you've kind of walked us through already hope from action um, and talked about the the biodiversity and climate crisis that we are all uh, living with, grieving, facing, trying to figure out how to cope and how to help. Um, go down to the biodiversity hypothesis and the nature quotient, and then the power uh, of our patchwork of gardens for, for both food and beauty and environment uh, restoration. Mm -hmm. uh, what a wonderful place to start, right? The beginning of the book. I, I really did my best with this first chapter to set up, um, again, a framework for how to approach the book, but how we could approach our lives. And I wanted to weave in the foundation, uh, using your words, I wanted to weave in some foundational knowledge that was really a way to uh, I guess, remind us of our core knowledge and retrieve existing knowledge and, uh, and also then inspire people to consider um, things such as, say, your nature quotient that uh, maybe readers hadn't yet uh, considered or, or heard of. Uh, the biodiversity hypothesis is a hypothesis that reminds us that we are nature. We are not separate from nature. We are integrally part of nature and the health of nature is a reflection of our own potential for health that we're only as healthy as the environment in which we live and our food can only be as vital and uh, nutrient rich and healthy as the environment in which it's grown and specifically the biodiversity hypothesis uh, is uh, based on a study out of Finland where there's a single cultural region there was a single cultural region in the north of Finland, and in World War II, a portion of it was ceded to Russia. And after World War II, uh, there was a, you know, a, then a firm line drawn between this, or in the middle of the single region. And after the war, the Finnish side urbanized, uh, became very modern, and the Russian side remained fairly rustic and continued to live uh, fairly agrarian and close to nature. And you can see this in images. It's yeah. pretty interesting. And over time, doctors and researchers started to ask, well, why is it that this area that was once one area, um, now on the Finnish side, they're showing that they have 10 times greater rates of asthma, allergies, inflammatory illnesses versus the Russian side, which is closer to nature, uh, doesn't have this increase in these types of illnesses. And it came back to microbes and the connectivity with nature, specifically microbes in soil and microbes on plants. And what we know is that we we uh, our our microfauna, the uh, the the microbial populations in our bodies that we are genetically more microbe than human. So you could say, wow, we there there we are. We are we are nature, right? But but um, 
the more biodiverse this microflora of our bodies, uh, the more resilient we are, just as in nature, the more biodiverse nature is, uh, the more resilient in the environment is. And there's this uh, cross-pollination, there's, there, there's this interconnection or uh, direct correlation uh, between our exterior environment and our inner environments. And, and scientists, uh, in one way, they, you can call this relationship um, uh, old friends. And before the biodiversity hypothesis, they, they actually had the old friends hy hypothesis that microbes help us decode and distill uh, the environment in which we live and help us understand who our friends are in nature and what we can eat and what, you know, it's okay to, to smell this flower. Uh, you, 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 it won't make you sick. You don't need an allergy against right. it, whatever it might be. And I, I, and I really, I, I really love their synopsis of the biodiversity hypothesis. They, even in the, in the opening summary of, of the study, they say, take nature close, bring nature close, hold it, spend time in nature and protect it. And that's why I put it in the first chapter. And I go on then to discuss the, your nature quotient, which is really a tool for helping us all cultivate uh, our experiences in nature and time in nature and look to, again, reasons why nature is so important. And luckily for us uh, who have gardens or who are interested in gardening, our gardens in many ways are our most um, immediate touch points with nature and mm -hmm. food included. Um, but we, we can cultivate our experiences in nature beginning at home, uh, just like we can begin uh, working towards positive climate action at home. Walk us through some examples of the gardens you visited and photographed, uh, as well as maybe, you know, some of the activities you uh, undertook with your daughter and your husband uh, that model all of these lessons kind of coming together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that speaks too to our patchwork of gardens, the last section of the first chapter. Uh, I, I really sought to pull in uh, imagery of a variety of gardens and garden, garden types so that readers could imagine themselves in the book. Uh, I, I included my daughter because I, I wanted to show growth. I also wanted to show um, this is something that we could do. You know, the, the how-tos of Grow Now are something we can do with our families and in our communities. Again, to show, but to show that visually without having to actually um, use words, but let the images speak for themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. um, um, and I, I just love that. Let me, I just want to interject here. I just loved, um, the, the metaphor of that, that, that in part we are doing this for ourselves and in part we are doing this for people we love, but very specifically we are doing it for the young people to whom we owe a better future than we are currently offering to them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and there's mental well-being in that too. So we're, we're, oh, we're offering yeah. these constructive ideas for how we can approach uh, our communities and again, our world 
And by including my daughter, Sinead, in the book, I, again, I wanted to show that. But yes, uh, when we look at the pandemic in particular, and then the climate crisis and the eco-anxiety that comes from the climate crisis, the toll on young people is massive. And I know all listeners, I'm sure all of your listeners have someone in their lives who's been touched um, in really difficult and challenging ways by the climate crisis with eco-anxiety uh, or the pandemic and or both. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. and it's, it's, I mean, it, if that doesn't spur someone to act, I'm not sure what does, but we, we really, we right. really do need to, to be acting not just for ourselves, but for, but for each other. Uh, and yeah. Okay, so I'm sorry, I, I took you off track. Take us to one or two of the gardens and maybe in different locations so we get a sense of how different locations model different uh, expressions for us. Yeah, so I, of course, photographed in California, uh, close to home. Again, it was 2020. I spent a lot of time in Robert Hewitt's garden with Girasol Sonoma and uh, in the Sonoma Garden Park and Ecology Center because that's maybe an hour from where I live. And um, Robert is someone that I, I talk to on a regular basis as well about these same topics. And so it was a really nice outlet for me to share ideas when I was writing the book and to have him help me source gardens. And because of his work in uh, growing and ecological gardening, I um, it was he was a wonderful, wonderful resource and friend to have during that time and, and his garden is so beautiful and uh, and a great example of what's possible he has renovated his front yard into a wildlife haven and when you're walking along the sidewalk and i show this in the book when you're walking along the sidewalk near his home uh it's little bits of lawn uh, in the section between the sidewalk and the road and then there's lawn on the other side and 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 you know as I say in the book, if you're a chickadee, where would you land? Where, yeah. where, where do you want to live? Yeah, you, I love that one. Where do you want to live? And then you go a, a, a plot away and here's Robert's garden, which is this abundance of, of, you know, forage and habitat for any number of birds and insects and wildlife. I mean, it's really, really pretty, uh, pretty much a stark contrast. Uh, yeah. uh, and then, yeah. Uh, I also photographed in uh, in New England. Uh, I was lucky enough to go to New England uh, that summer, and I can't remember what took us there. It was right when the pandemic was easing up enough to allow travel. Oh, we went we we went to Vermont, and we. Oh, we rent a little cottage on an island and there's like six cottages and we thought, okay, if we're going to go anywhere, this is going to be the safest place to go. And it sounds posh, but it's not. The cottage is basically falling down. If it were in California, it would be condemned because it's on these bricks and it would tip over in an earthquake in a hot second. <laughs> but I love how rustic it is. And we just went and um, secluded ourselves there and it was such a nice change of pace. Uh, but when I was in Vermont, I connected with... Uh, uh, a few people, one of them uh, has a flower farm, and the flower farm is in her backyard. It was at the time. That's West Lane Flowers, 
uh, just outside of Burlington, Vermont, and she gardens regeneratively. She uses she uses the regenerative techniques of of covering ground, disturb, disturbing the soil as little as possible with no dig, planting biodiversity, growing organic, doing no harm, you know, all the basics of regenerative. And she does it there in her flower farm, in in a in basically what looks like you know suburbia, and it's incredible. Um, and I also photographed uh, Eric Tonsmeyer's garden in Massachusetts. Eric Tonsmeyer is a fellow with Project Drawdown, uh, which is a, a climate positive organization. And uh, he, he's an author himself. Paradise Lot is one of his books. And he has a perennial food forest that's on about a tenth of an acre. It's a tenth of an acre. And he in Holyoke, Massachusetts, where the temperatures you can imagine in the winter are really quite cold, he manages to harvest some form of food 11 months out of the year for him and his family, which is it's incredible. It, and for him, it's not about quantity. It's not, not about how much he can harvest, but that he has nutrition right out his door. And he's also using his food forest as a place to study these plants and understand uh, their viability in varying climates and how they could perform in other people's gardens to provide food just as they do for him and his family. And he uses uh, regenerative techniques as well. And um, he, at heart, he's a permaculturalist, but, but um, at the core, he's using regenerative techniques. And that was really a wonderful opportunity to photograph that because it's so starkly different from, say, Robert's garden or the garden at West Lane, the flower farm at West Lane. Uh, and and those are just a few examples of the many. I, I photographed a rooftop flower garden or flower farm in Berkeley. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to spend some time in LA and I, I photographed uh, some gardens there that are open to the public. Uh, it's really pretty remarkable what some people are doing. And that was really to show the, the gardens in LA, uh, you'll see one image of a raised bed that on the side of the raised bed, it says, um, eat me or please, yeah, please eat, please <laughs> eat me. And, and this is another way to use that health strip, this, the strip between the road and the sidewalk. They have a raised bed right there and they have it filled with food and anyone can pick from this garden. And these raised bed boxes, these garden boxes um, are um, along the city streets in Venice and they're there for everyone to to harvest from. I think it's really remarkable, and it and the, the community responds to it. And what you see too, which is really neat, is you see that the neighborhoods where those uh, garden boxes uh, are exist, those uh, residents that live nearby are caring for their yard so much more. There's so much more pride in their community because of the community that the garden boxes and the food growing uh, offer. This is Cultivating Place. Emily Murphy is a gardener, an educator, and an author. Her most recent book is Grow Now, How We Can Save Our Health, Communities, and Planet One Garden at a Time. We'll be right back. Stay with us. So, hey, it's Jennifer. 
You know, the gardens and gardeners highlighted in the illustrations and models in Emily Murphy's Grow Now are great lessons in action of gardens for climate activism, as are the gardens, gardeners, and gardening techniques highlighted in Under Western Skies, which was published almost one year ago, and the creation of Caitlin Atkinson and myself. This past week, I had the pleasure of presenting to two garden groups about the lessons of the gardens in Under Western Skies, and I'll be sharing more about these gardens and their greater climate purposes at the San Francisco Flower and Garden Show. I would be thrilled if you could join me on Saturday, April 9th. In these times, these gardeners, those in Grow Now and those in Under Western Skies, remind us that our gardens are our greatest strengths and sources of beauty and respite and power, individually and communally. Happy Equinox Gardeners around the world. Emily Murphy is a gardener and a passionate educator. Her newest book, Grow Now, shows us how we can save our health, communities, and planet through our gardens as places of direct climate activism. As we come back to our conversation with Emily, she shares more on the importance of these actions in these times. You know, when you think about all of the lessons that this work encapsulates and these stories and these gardens and your life path that are included in Grow Now, you know, from supporting and engaging and inviting biodiversity into our lives to doing what your garden can to sequester carbon. What are, what are, you know, if you could come up with a list of five steps that any gardener, whether they're like gardening in pots on their windowsill or front stoop, or they actually have a backyard or front yard space, what what are the five things you would like to see gardeners do and even non-gardeners try to take on uh, as we face the the next year, the next five years? Mm-hmm. Uh, composts compost your kitchen scraps, compost your leaves, your yard trimmings. Make sure that if they go into a green waste bin, that they're actually going to a compost facility that is not the dump. Uh, When food scraps and green waste uh, leaves and yard trimmings go to the landfill, they produce methane, which is a greenhouse gas 28 times more potent than carbon. Carbon uh, and that alone is is huge. Uh, part of what we mentioned, I mentioned earlier, Project Drawdown. If you have a Project Drawdown chapter, my guess is that one of the um, areas of, uh, of focus is to find ways to increase the number of composting facilities within the community. Mm-hmm. Here in my community, uh, there are composting hubs where composting happens locally. But in many communities, it's, it's true that compost is sent out of the county, out of the area where it's composted, because it, there's a lot of red tape in getting a permit and having the space to create compost at scale. Uh, 
it goes out of the area and then it gets shipped back. So then you have all these carbon emissions just from transporting it back and forth when it could be composted on site. I think that that is the easiest place for all of us to start, whether we grow something or not, whether we're actively gardening like or it, not, yep. because we're actively eating. <laughs> yeah, and we're and, and one of the things I, I learned through researching Grow Now is um, is that there we could be facing a compost shortage uh, in the coming years. And I learned this from the writers of a study who were who were researching uh, the ability to store carbon at depth in soil, so below one foot. Uh, and part of the regenerative process is looking at how we can move carbon from the atmosphere underground. And I wanted to get to the root of this. What are What is the potential? And you know, I was lucky enough to talk to some of the writers of, of the, the paper that was produced from a 20-year study out of UC Davis. And they concluded that composting, adding a half inch to an inch or more of compost to the landscape, immediately begins the process of uh, shuttling carbon from the atmosphere underground. Now, of course, that that has to be tempered. Uh, it looks different, say, if you're in the southwest uh, and you're in more arid part of the country where there's much less rainfall uh, because microbes need moisture to live, just like other living things. And, and at the parent material, the soil, et cetera, et cetera. So there are nuances to that. But at the end of the conversation with two of the writers, they both came back to me and said, but there might be a compost shortage. We really need to be actively composting locally so that we have compost available to uh, community members and small scale um, uh, operations like community gardens because of this compost shortage they're expecting as, and I'm gonna use the word sustainable because that's a common term right now, as sustainable agriculture comes online and becomes more mainstream, hopefully soon that will become regenerative agriculture. Uh, the need for compost in these, in these large scale settings is going to increase. And so we really need to be considering that. We also uh, need to consider uh, going organic or going beyond organic and thinking twice about what we put on and in our gardens as far as chemicals, uh, synthetic fertilizers, uh, pesticides and herbicides. And that includes OMRI certified, uh, some OMRI certified organic practices. If it has a skull and crossbones on the, on the package, <laughs> then it's probably something you want to avoid, even if it's OMRI certified. And, uh, you know, the, the goal is to support ecology at all levels. And the, when we support ecology at all levels, we, we create a more robust, resilient system that has the ability to, to correct and right itself. And with that, yeah, it might take some time. We need to remember to be generous and be patient and remember that good things take time and to think like an ecosystem and to do our best to mimic nature. Those would be two places I would start besides, of course, caring for soil and feeding the soil ecology and taking a no-dig approach. And that includes uh, how we uh, fill our containers and how we fill our raised beds. Uh, the rule of thumb is to use a 50-50 blend when you're filling a new raised bed or box with topsoil and compost. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that topsoil has to come from somewhere. And sometimes, sure, it comes from a site that's already been excavated as a building site. Uh, but in reality, if it has to come from somewhere, it's coming from a place where it could otherwise just stay. And, 
And instead, we can fill our boxes using a lasagna garden or hugu culture technique where we're layering organic materials in our uh, containers or our bins and composting in place and planting in that, which is, which is what I did this last year when my family moved. I, uh, we moved during the pandemic and um, I built five raised beds and I filled them all in this lasagna garden fashion, topping them with compost. And I had the best crops ever starting three months Yay. later. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. And, and so those are some of the, those are three areas I think I would begin and, and avoiding peat, of course, peat, peat on all levels. Uh, and again, that's looking at the labels Maybe that's five areas, maybe that's six, uh, but really the regenerative process of, of caring for soil, disturbing the soil as little as possible, feeding the soil with organic matter, um, planting biodiversity for biodiversity, and remember that the biodiversity of plants we grow above ground inherently uh, contributes to the biodiversity below ground and vice versa. Uh, biodiverse soil ecology uh, improves the resiliency of and, and supports the biodiversity above ground. Doing no harm. That's our Hippocratic oath as gardeners, I believe, I believe is yeah. to yeah. yeah, is to do no harm and protect wild places. Wild places are reservoirs of biodiversity that we benefit from on so many levels. And and going back to finding beauty we need those reservoirs yeah. of biodiversity yeah. because we need these beautiful places. It's, we can't forget how, how valuable they are even without a price tag. Uh, although we could probably run down that rabbit hole and discover a price tag on some level. I'm sure someone has. Yeah. Uh, mm. Those would be the places I would start. Yeah. Those are some of the tangible takeaways for um, hope in action and, and pair it with a new framework for how we see the world, which is a process. We have to be gentle with ourselves and give ourselves time to incorporate, I think, this new framework. Uh, we, we have the opportunity collectively in community to, to make a difference. And going back to what you said early in our conversation, my garden plus my neighbor's garden and their neighbor's garden together really have the potential for positive impact because then we're creating we're creating living greenways and wildlife corridors and nectar paths uh, for uh, wildlife to move about and for ecosystems and the environment in general to rebound and and really um, find resiliency in the face of the climate crisis uh, and species extinction is there anything you would like to add about insights that you have had during this process or deepening of your own relationship to your garden in this process, Emily, before we sign off? Oh, I think we've covered so much. If anything, this process causes me to stop and question everything I do every day and wonder, okay, why am I doing this? Who's going to come to visit? Do I have this right? Do I, oh, I'm not sure if I have this right. <laughs> I'm gonna plant this. Do I really wanna plant that? What are the ramifications of that? And I'm growing a native garden right now and uh, uh, a wildlife meadow, basically rewilding my front yard. And, and the entire time I'm questioning that. And I have to remember, or I'm hoping listeners and readers remember that 
no matter how far along we are, there's still questions to ask. It's important to be curious and, uh, and know that, that um, like doctors who are practicing medicine, we give doctors the room to practice medicine, even though we trust them with our lives. Uh, we have to give ourselves room to practice living and to practice growing and know that we're doing the best we can. We have to start somewhere. And my hope is that Grow Now gives uh, readers a place to start from and the foundational uh, knowledge, core knowledge to begin with knowing that their understanding will evolve as they grow and change. Thank you so much for being a guest on the program today. I am so excited about the depth and scope of your your new work and the the personal and uh, evidence-based inquiry inside of it. I so appreciate your work. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Emily Murphy is an ecological gardener, an educator, and an author. Her newest book is Grow Now, How We Can Save Our Health, Communities, and Planet One Garden at a Time. Join us again next week when we're joined by medical ethnobotanist and Emory professor, Dr. Cassandra Quave, who shares with us the very personal story of her quest to develop new ways to fight illness and disease through the healing powers of plants. In today's world of synthetic pharmaceuticals, Dr. Quave believes our connection to the natural and plant world is in fact our greatest opportunity to discover new life-saving medicines needed in the medical challenges of our time, including pandemics and rising antibiotic resistance. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you and by partner support from the California Native Plant Society. For more information and many images and graphics from Emily's newest, Grow Now, and her work at Pass the Pistol, head on over to cultivatingplace.com and look for this week's show notes under the podcast tab. That's all at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.